If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. By this point in the narrative, the promised son Isaac had become a young man. Abraham's dream had come true, but into this paradise, God suddenly said, Take your son and offer him as a burnt offering. The author says this was God's way of testing Abraham and in, in its most basic terms this test was a choice between God's blessing and God himself because sometimes we can be so focused on the blessing that we forget about the God that gave us the blessing how would Abraham respond the answer is given in that little clause Abraham got up early in the morning God told Abraham to give up the one blessing in his life that he treasured most and Abraham's response was to obey immediately. He may not have understood how God would provide, but he knew that God would provide. So he avoided the counterfeits of partial obedience and delayed obedience, which are both really disobedience, following God boldly into the unknown. And when Abraham and Isaac reached the mountain, Abraham told his servants, the boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Somehow Abraham believed that he would be coming back down the mountain with Isaac. However, the situation began to get awkward when Isaac looked around and said, Hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Where is it at? You brought me all the way up here, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham responded by reassuring Isaac that God himself would provide for the burnt offering. Abraham knew that he was in a situation that he could not fix on his own he had to trust God can you imagine what he had been inquired to do felt like a contradiction but instead of unraveling the contradiction himself he decided to trust God and we pick it up in verses 19 9 through 13 Genesis 22 9 through 13 and when they came to the place of which God had told him Abraham built the altar look at your neighbor and say Abraham built the altar Come on, say it like you mean it. Abraham built the altar. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Look, you know when that angel says your name twice, you better pay attention. And he said, here, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This whole week, I couldn't shake it. 
And this is the statement that I feel like the Holy Spirit kept impressing on me and pressing on me. God wants to feel our commitment. God wants to feel our commitment. How committed are we really? Or is this just something we just do occasionally? Go through the motions. Give God a little here, a little there, but not give Him our all. Today there's a challenge that's going forward. And there's a call that has to be answered. How committed I am. How committed am I to the kingdom of God? Because there's some altars that we avoid because we don't want to deal with things in order to completely follow Jesus Christ. So I'm going to preach for a little while today on this topic. And avoid it, altar. And avoid it, altar. If you will, help me pray. God, I need you today. God, there's a challenge that's going forth. God, you're calling us to commit completely. You're calling us to establish some altars in our life. God, you're calling us today. You want to feel our commitment. You want to know how committed are we to your kingdom. Today, help us to leave here. Leave here fully challenged, but also responding in the right way that we're ready to follow. God, we pray for your favor and your blessings and your anointing on this service and this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody shout amen. amen. Give the Lord one more hand clap of praise. You may be seated this morning. Prominent not only in the architectural design of the past, but also in most of our memories. For some, it was padded. For others, it folded down. For others, it was built sturdy and elevated like, like this up here. And for others, it was a separate piece of furniture that often became a display location for offering plates, plastic flowers, and covered tissue boxes with the inscription of in remembrance of me on it. I remember as a kid, the church I grew up in, we had one of those. It was an altar in the middle, and it had in remembrance of me. I never knew who me was. Is it Jesus? Who, who's me? Did we, are we giving this altar to somebody? So maybe you know, help me after service. I'm still trying to figure that out. But it's the altar. And many, if not all of us, have had life-changing moments at the altar. If you've ever had an encounter with God at an altar, I want you to raise your hand. Look, hold, it, hold it up high. If you, if you encountered God at an altar, I want you to raise your hand. Look all over this place. Why is that? Because the altar isn't our idea. It's God's idea. Matter of fact, it's mentioned 370 different times in Scripture. The message is abundantly clear. God meets us at the altar. Thomas W. Davis said that altars were placed where the divine and human worlds interacted. It's a place where heaven meets earth. A designated place set apart for spending time in the presence of God and serves as a refuge and comfort from the troubles of this world. And it's where we intercede for others. There are different types of altars. There is personal altars. Anybody know what a personal altar is? It's your daily altar. It's your personal altar. It's, it's, it's that time of the day that you set aside and you say, you know what, I need the presence of God right now to be activated in my life. It's a personal altar. It's an altar that you say, I'm pushing everything else away. I'm going to pray and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to spend time with the Holy Spirit right now. And then you have the family or the home altar. Now that altar has almost disappeared. Boy, we quick to turn on a television show in our home, but we not so quick to build an altar in our home and have prayer with our children and read the word of God this altar is a place where family members gather to commune 
worship, praise, and pray to God. It also requires a specific time. Hey, guys, we're going to set up a time today, and we're going to pray. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to talk about Jesus Christ in our home, and we're going to establish an altar. Then you have a church altar. The church itself serves as an altar where Christians come together to worship and pour out their hearts to God. And these altars are vital in our world because broken altars hinder what God wants to do in our lives. If our altars are broken down, then God can't do what he fully wants to do in our lives. It's sad to say, but the state of many believers today reveals weakness, apathy, and decline because the fires of revival and renewal have dimmed or been hindered by sin, worldly influences, and spiritual opposition. We've got too much stuff going on in our life, so we don't ever repair the altar. We don't reestablish the altar. We don't rebuild the altar. Occasionally, we'll go to the altar. Preacher, you preach that right message. I'm going to have an altar experience today. But Monday through Saturday, don't expect me to set up any personal altars. Don't expect me to build anything. Don't expect me to spend time with Jesus Christ. To bring about change, we must, hear me today, repair the altar. We've got to repair it. When the prophet Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, it was at an altar. And the God that answered by fire would be God. And the prophets of Baal, when it was their turn, they destroyed the altar. And then it was time for Elijah to step up. And he, he had a lot against him. The king and a wicked queen who despised him and wanted him dead. Jezebel, she was killing prophets already. And then he had to face off with 450 prophets of Baal. There was a slim chance of survival if God didn't show up in the fire. But Elijah started to repair the altar. He rebuilt the altar. He dug a trench around it and prepared a bull to lay across the altar. Then he, he drenched everything with water four times. And at Elijah's cry, God rained fire from heaven upon the altar and the flames consumed the sacrifice and the wood and the altar and the dust around it. After seeing this majestic display, you know what happened? The people that seen it fell on their knees and began to repent and begin to say, we, we commit, we're committing our lives to this God. This God that just answered by fire, he is God. This God that we just witnessed this man build an altar to, he is God. And revival broke out in the land. The dams of heaven broke. And much needed rain pattered down on the dusty soil. Bringing a new season of fruitfulness to a dead land. All because an altar was rebuilt. And God was called upon. How do we build an altar? How, how do we build it? How do we repair? How do we rebuild the altar? Well first off. If we had to build it out of wood. And with some nails. And some cement. Any type of physical material, I would be in a bind because I can't build anything. It would be the ugliest altar you've ever seen in your life. I'm telling you. It'd probably fall apart. You'd probably kneel down at it and just fall down. I can't build nothing. But the altar that I'm talking about, how you build this altar, is we repent, we surrender, we pray, and we linger in the presence of God. We let Him know we need you every day of our life. That's the primary requirement. The primary requirement to establish an altar is a passion and a hunger for God's presence. And have you noticed right now that people are less hungry for God right now than they've been in a long time? Passion. I'm telling you, I've done this 11 years and I can feel it in my spirit. It is getting hard to connect with people spiritually because we've got so much stuff that is piling in on us that we've allowed the altar to be neglected so our priorities, they're not in order and everything... Look, if God's not first, everything else is going to be out of order. He said, seek me first in my kingdom, 
my righteousness. And these things will be added unto you. Every great revival and awakening started with somebody saying, I value the altar in my life. John Knox had an altar and shook Scotland with his prayers. Jonathan Edwards became the father of the great awakening because he had an altar. Charles Finney brought revival during the Civil War because he had an altar. John Wesley preached to the miners with great success because of an altar. The Welsh revival of 1904 started with an altar. At the age of 13 years old, Evan Roberts felt compelled to seek a closer relationship with God. And at the suggestion of a deacon, he began to attend every prayer meeting he could find. This was a habit that he held for 13 years. Can you imagine? Hey, you got a prayer meeting? I'm coming, over. I'm coming to your prayer meeting. You got a prayer meeting? I'm coming over here to your prayer meeting. For 13 years, this was a habit. And in the spring of 1904, he began to experience supernatural encounters with God that lasted most of the night. God would awaken him from sleep at 1 in the morning. And he would begin to pray and commune with God for four hours. And these encounters occurred for almost three months. Listen, I haven't heard of God waking anybody up at 1 in the morning. Could it be because we're not hearing him clearly? Could it be that we've got so much going on in our mind and our spirit that we can't even hear the call of God to get up and to pray? I remember the elders used to say, God woke me up to pray for so-and-so because something was getting ready to happen. Because priorities were in order. On September the 29th, 1904, he attended a revival meeting led by Seth Joshua, who ended the meeting with a prayer that included these words, Bend us, O Lord. Evans later testified that the Holy Spirit whispered to him, This is what you need. Unable to shake the thought of bend us, he attended the next morning service. And during the service, he became overwhelmed by the call of God. And he knelt among the people, tears streaming down his face. He began to cry, bend me, bend me, bend me, use me, O God. Uneducated and young, Evan Roberts became a leading influence in the Welsh revival that began that year. He seldom preached. Well, that's my type of revival. Any type of revival I don't have to preach, let me be a part of it. Just pray, believe, and show up. But often he would simply pray and lead others in prayer. He would sit in silence and listen as God moved people to testify and repent of sin. Worship lasted for hours. He was often heard to say, bend the church and save the world. Bend the church and save the world. Bend the church and save the world. And the Welsh revival of 1904 saw 100,000 people come to Christ in just nine months. Because one young man said, I've got to rebuild the altar. we got to have revival. Somebody's got to hear from God. Somebody's got to get a burden. One historian wrote, outstanding debts were paid by thousands of young converts. The gambling and alcohol business lost their trade, and the theaters closed down. They had such a revival, they closed the theaters down. The man-made denominational barriers completely collapsed as believers and pastors worshipped their majestic Lord Lord together. Political meetings were canceled or abandoned. All Because one man said, if you can use anybody, use me. I'm going to have an altar in my life. And I have heard the call. I know it's Thanksgiving week. I know we're full. I know we feel satisfied. But I've heard the call of God this whole week. I've heard it say, can I use you? Can I trust you? Can I feel your commitment? Will you pray, bend me, and use me, and shape me, O Lord? I know what you're thinking, Pastor. Now's not the right time. We're getting ready to go into election year. The economy isn't great. Things aren't going good. Do you know that revival often occurred in times of personal or national crisis and great spiritual need? Surrounded by dark clouds of economic and social decline, revival would happen. 
And it was on Mount Sinai that God gave Moses an important guarantee. Exodus 20, 24. The Lord instructed, instructed them to build an altar. And every place his name was remembered, he would show up. He said, build an altar. He said, call on my name. And if you do, I will show up. Solomon asked God to hear Israel's cry for help when they suffered difficult circumstances. They were defeated. There was no rain. There, were, there was famine and plagues and disaster and disease because of sin. God says, I'll help. Here's the answer. If they would humble themselves, pray, seek his face, repent, and turn from their sinful ways, he would hear from heaven and forgive them and he would heal their land. What, what, what if the problem isn't the world around us? What if the problem is the church needs to get back to rebuilding altars and praying and asking God to intervene? See, the, the power of prayer does not flow from us. It is not unique words that we say or the special way we say them. I know some people, they got too much prayer etiquette. Blessed be God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They don't know the rest of the scripture, but they stop right there. They think, I got to say the right words, and I got to pray the right way. The power of prayer is not based on a certain direction we face or learn body language. No, prayer is us being authentic and open in the presence of God. The original tabernacle, Moses was com commanded to make an altar out of uncut stones. There was no beauty or artistic detail. It was merely a place of obedience and sacrifice because prayer is not learned, it's activated. It's complete surrender and originality. It is using your voice to move the mountains that God has anointed you to move. It's because the depth of prayer is not really about us. It's about the one we're connecting with. It's about the one that's on the other end of the rope that we're holding on to. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we're going to preach it today. Prayer has the power to change things. Prayer can make a difference. Open, open this Bible. Well, preacher, you done lost your mind. No, no, no. Open this word. The word of God is full of accounts describing the power of prayer in various situations. The power of prayer has overcome enemies, conquered death, brought healing, defeated demons, and saved the land. God, through prayer, opens eyes, changes hearts, heals wounds, and grants wisdom. The power of prayer should never be underestimated. And the enemy is telling us today, don't pray, it don't matter. He don't hear your prayers. It won't make any difference. The devil is a lie. If you pray and call on the name of the Lord and build an altar, he will show up. Listen, I don't know who I'm talking to, but I know what I'm talking about your altar and your prayers are essential right now because prayer changes things and prayer changes people. But prayer won't change things or people before it changes me. I almost kicked my leg up on that one. I love how we pray for everybody else, but prayer, real prayer really changes me. Do you know why Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies? Because you can't hate who you pray for. But that's it. That's an avoided altar. Oh, I'm going to pray for everybody else. I'm going to pray blessing on sister so-and-so. But I'm not praying blessing on brother so-and-so. His attitude is terrible. You say he, he walks in there like he owns the place. No, ma'am, no, sir. He didn't even shake my hand today. The Bible says pray 
for our enemies. Pray for those. Hey, if somebody's bothering you, pray for them. Ask God to help you. Prayer is not just me laying stuff on the altar. It's me presenting my body, my life, my feelings, and my all as a living sacrifice. It's me saying, God, I need you to take every aspect of my life. If I've got hatred and bitterness and animosity and anything in my life that is hindering revival, God, help me with that. Help me with that. Help me with that. Listen, if we're really praying, if we say something that might hurt somebody, prayer will convict us. You shouldn't have said that. Text them and apologize right now. Text them. But we got too many people praying our prayers, not kingdom prayers. But we must start praying his will and realize we cannot accept an invitation to follow Jesus unless we say no to ourselves. In Luke 9 and 23, Jesus makes it clear that if we are going to follow him, a casual, no-strings-attached arrangement isn't a possibility. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. You can't really start praying until you start telling yourself, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to think that way. I'm not going to act like that. I'm not going to say that. No, listen, anytime the enemy, enemy shows up and tempts you and says, hey, come on, come with me. No. No to you and no to myself. I'm going to an altar and I'm going to deal with it right now. I need the help of the Holy Spirit right now. Listen, the phrase deny, deny yourself isn't just the idea of saying no to yourself or even resisting yourself. The idea here is that you do not even acknowledge or recognize your own existence. I am here because God wants to use me here. And the Holy Spirit controls every aspect of my life. And we've referenced it a few times, but I want to go, go back to it one more time. The tabernacle of Moses was given, the tabernacle of Moses was given instruction to build, was set up right in the middle of Israel's camp. It was the abiding symbol that God wanted to be with his people right in the center of their lives. But right there in the courtyard of the tabernacle was the very first piece of furniture that anyone would have seen you know what it was the altar of sacrifice it was the largest piece of furniture anywhere in the tabernacle why is that important because getting into the presence of God will cost you some things there's some things you got to sacrifice see that's the thing we want to invite Jesus to take a journey with us instead of hearing his invitation to take a journey with him but you can't go down this path without leaving another path you can't. You can't say I'm going to follow Jesus and not leave anything behind. There's some things you've got to lay down and leave alone. In Matthew 19, we meet a man whose name we don't know. He's referred to as the rich young ruler. He's followed a path that has led to wealth and power. But he comes to Jesus with a question in verse 16. He asks, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Notice he says, what must I do? That word could be translated acquire or earn. He thinks... If I can just build an impressive resume, what, what, what do you want me to do? And eventually Jesus tells this man what he needs to do. In Matthew 19, verse 21, Jesus says, says, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus invites the man to become his follower, but first the man is told to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. 99.9% .9 of us would check out. I'm not selling all my stuff. You're not getting my truck, my house. You're not getting it. You're not getting my television. You're not getting my iPad. 
you're not getting nothing. And I know what you're thinking. Does Jesus require this of everyone? I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not telling you to go sell anything today. That's between you and the good Lord. But I will tell you the source of the rich young ruler's disease was his love for his possessions and his money. And there was only one cure for his disease. He needed to sell everything, give the money to the poor, and follow Jesus. And if this young man wanted all that Jesus could give, then he needed to give Jesus his all. And he's faced with the choice of following Jesus or keeping his stuff, but he couldn't do both because his stuff had become his identity. And there was no way to follow Jesus without denying himself. So Jesus puts this man at a crossroads. He says, look, it's either me or it's your stuff. Preacher, what does that mean for me? It's simple. Have you given Jesus access to every part of your life? In fact, I would say the more defensive you are right now of this challenge, the more likely it is that Jesus might be saying the same words to you. There's some things you haven't given me yet. There's some things that you're holding on to that you're not willing to let go of. What is true is that everyone who follows Jesus will find himself or herself at a similar crossroad as this man in Matthew 19. You won't be able to take the path of following Jesus without leaving some stuff behind. He wanted to follow Jesus, but when forced to choose between Jesus and his stuff, he chose his stuff. Here's the point. If we call him Lord, we have to turn everything over to him. My job is his. My family is his. So what does that mean? If, if my wife and my kids belong to him, then I'll be judged by how I treat them because they're his, they're his property. My wallet belongs to him. My truck belongs to him. My house belongs to him. Do you know what that means? If I lose it all tomorrow, I'm going to keep serving him. I've got to give him every aspect of my life. I've got to give him everything. He's got to be in control. My hobbies, they belong to him. My ability belongs to him. My talents belong to him. I tell my son, I want you to play basketball and I want you to be good. But your talent is to bring glory to God. That's why you have that ability. My treasures belong to him. And if they become more important than him, then they've got to be laid on the altar. We've got to come to grips with the fact that God wants us to use every resource that we have for his kingdom. And without a daily altar, we get distracted and weighed down with life. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ and his kingdom are no longer first in our life. They're no longer first. For Abraham, that's why his altars were, were important. It was his time of communion. No matter what, what happened in Abraham's life, he said, I've got to have an altar because I've got to have direction. I've got to talk. Let me ask you a question. How many has got some decisions that you need to make? Raise your hand if you've got some decisions you need to make. Don't raise your hand on this one. I'm about to, about to ask a follow-up question. Because today's question Sunday. When's the last time you prayed before you made that decision? When's the last time you went to that altar and said, man, which, which direction should I go? Abraham knew. He said, man, I can't make it without my altars. And there are four great altars in the life of Abraham. There's Shechem. When God called, you gotta, I'm telling you, these words will get you. I had to listen to it. I was at the gym running on the elliptical. Shechem, 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 Shechem. I kept hitting YouTube. Play that word in my ear. And when God called Abram to leave his homeland, he obeyed in faith, arriving at Shechem in the land of Canaan. And Abraham built an altar. The meaning of the name Shechem is the shoulder. Shechem, the shoulder, the place of strength. That's your shoulders. 
Biblically, when we begin to study the significance and type of shoulder, we understand that the shoulder is meant for bearing burdens. Abraham learned first that his altar was to be a place where he left his burdens. He said, well, i got to have an altar because when there's things that I'm carrying that are too heavy for me, I need an altar to put them on the shoulders of God Almighty so he can... That's why the Bible says, cast your cares. Because if we're not careful, we'll get all this baggage and their burdens. Man, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. Follow up to my story about the eye drops. And I'm hurrying. A couple weeks ago, I told y'all I thought I was going blind because I used some eye drops that weren't even recalled, but I didn't know they weren't recalled. And it's been a deal. I went to the eye doctor on Tuesday. I did. And they said, you got 20-20 vision. There ain't nothing wrong with your eyes. I said, ma'am, you, you better look at them again. I'm telling you, I've been, been having trouble. But that was a burden. It was something that I carried. And I'm guilty because I never built an altar and said, here, you can have this anxiety and this worry and this fear. Worrying about our children and worried about our finances. Sometimes we've got to build an altar and we've got to lay that on the altar. And watch this. You, did you know this, that, that when the Jews pray, they rock back and forth when they pray? You know why? It's because they believe that the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord. And as they rock back and forth, that that flame gets stronger and it gets bigger. And there's sometimes that the enemy oppresses us so much that the flame in our life is getting ready to go out. But hear me if you'll get in the presence of God and say, God, I'm giving it all to you. God, my flame is getting ready to go out, but I'm going to pray anyway. Come on, I'm going to give it all to you. I'm not going to fizzle out right now. The second altar was Bethel. Then he traveled toward Bethel and he built another altar. And this altar was his meeting place with God. Later he left Bethel and went to Egypt. Then he went from Egypt to the south. And from the south he went back to Bethel. Staying in Bethel, in between Bethel and Ai, the place where he first built an altar. And there he took responsibility for his sin and the door to heaven was open for communication with God. As Abram worshipped, he received promises and abundant blessings from the Lord. He visited this altar at Bethel more than he did any other altar. Do you know what Bethel means? The house of God. Because you got to get here even when you don't feel like it because it'll make your life a little bit easier and better. Why? Because the presence of the Lord is here. And then Abraham's third altar was at Hebron. And after Lot had chosen and faced his tent toward the well-watered plain of Sodom and separated from Abraham, the Lord again appeared to Abraham, renewing his promise to him, saying, Walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Obedient to the word of God, Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelled in the plain of Mamre, which is Hebron. And he built there an altar unto the Lord. Mamre means strength and Hebron means company. And it's here at this altar that we find that if we build an altar, God will give us strength and he'll be our company. He'll never leave us. There's a song that they used to sing. Where do I go? So I did that face. That's my singing face. Where? You got to be looking away and you got to say, where do I go? Come on, somebody. When there's nobody else to turn to. Who do I talk to when no one wants to listen? Who do I lean on when there's no foundation stable? I tell you where I go. I go to the rock. He's more than able. I go to the rock. 
And then they go on to say, where do I hide? When the storms of life threatening, where do I run to? What? I'll tell you what. I'm feeling it today. Got my help. Where do I turn to when the winds of sorrow blow? Is there a refuge in the time of tribulation? Because I go to the rock, I know he's able. When the earth all around me sinking sand on Christ the solid rock I stand when I need a shelter when I need a friend when the earth all around me is sinking I go to the rock of my salvation does anybody know him as strength and company he'll never leave you or forsake you he'll be there every I go to the rock go to the rock man I'm telling you get ended right there I'll get some spikes up here on these keys. We'll do a duet. It'll be over. I'm telling you, over. Game over. But I got to get to the fourth altar. I'd love to end it right there. But I've got to get to the altar on Mount Moriah. Because the altars of Shechem, Bethel, and Hebron were not altars for sacrifice. But built to indicate relationship with the Lord and dependence upon Him. This altar was a different kind of altar that Abraham built on Mount Moriah to which God had directed him saying, Genesis 22 and 2, take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And there are two very interesting statements in this account. God says to Abraham, take your son of promise, your only son Isaac whom you love. That's an excruciating demand. Not so bad if he wanted Ishmael. But he wanted Isaac. It's an entirely different matter. Here's the deal. We don't mind giving God our mistakes, our deficiencies, and our weaknesses. But what if God requires what we love? We don't mind saying, hey, I made a, I made a mistake. I'm going to give all that to you. And God says, but I want you to give up this and give up that. And I want you to lay that down for a little while. truth is that we avoid this altar of sacrifice because it makes, up, makes us give up things we love. And the second statement is to bring Isaac, your only son. This is interesting because we know that Isaac wasn't his only son. He's, he had Ishmael who was born because Abraham got impatient and took matters into his own hands. And this is important because we often hear sacrifice, but we try to substitute. God says, give up that. You're like, oh, I'll give up this. God says, I, I need you to lay that on. All. No, 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 no. I'll give up this. Rather than obeying completely, we like to substitute something we choose, something we love less, something we don't mind losing. And we're like, God, we're good. And that's why we avoid this altar because it exposes our idols. And some things are not immoral. Please hear me, but they're amoral. They're morally neutral until they're not. There are some things that we do in our life that's not sin, it's not wrong. We could be serving something that is in itself very commendable. It could be a family, a career, a hobby to help us rest and relax. It could be a worthy cause. The problem is that the instant something takes the place of God, the moment it becomes an end in itself rather than something to lay at God's throne, it becomes an idol. 
And when someone or something replaces the Lord God in the position of glory in our lives, then that person or thing by definition has become our God and we worship it more than we worship God. Could it be today that Abraham would laugh at our painless, cheap altar experiences? Could it be? Oh, you, you had to give that up for a day? Man, <laughs> well, poor you. Well, you sacrificed that up. Man, you carved out a Sunday to go to church? See, we want the altar to be about a dance, but Abraham's altar was about obedience. And we want the altar to be about a shout, but Abraham shows us that sometimes the altar is about sacrifice. We want the altar to be about pleasure, when God is saying sometimes the altar is about commitment. It's not about what I can do for you. It's, it's about what are you willing to give up to have revival. What are you willing to sacrifice in order for me to use you? And this altar I'm preaching about is not about getting, but entirely giving. This altar is an altar about choices. Have you had an altar experience lately that has forced you to make any hard choices in your life? Because this altar would be Abraham's final altar. And it was the altar that shaped him more than any other altar for the rest of his life. It was an altar that he had to climb a mountain. I don't know why I said it that passionately, but I did. He had to climb a mountain. And he had to trust in the provision of God. Abraham called his sacrifice. He said, we're going to worship. Y'all abide here. Me and the lad, we're going up to worship. He was confident that the lad would return with him, even if he could not understand all that was before him. And the writer of the epistle to, he, to the Hebrews interprets this for us, where he writes that Abraham accounted that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Abraham's obedience is fully tested. God let the suffering old man go through with it up to the point where he knew there would be no retreat. And then as he got ready, go read it. As he got ready to take the knife to slaughter his son, there was a voice that stopped Abraham. Don't, don't, Abraham, I see that you're honest and you're serious right now about your relationship with me. It was never really about you sacrificing Isaac. It was just about you loved him more than you loved me. You love the promise more than you love the promise giver. And then all of a sudden Abraham looks up and he saw, sees a ram that's caught in the thicket by its horns. And God's timing to me is funny like that. The ram must have been there the whole time. But Abraham didn't notice it until God wanted to reveal it. Because sometimes God wants to see obedience before he reveals to you the answer. Think about this. While Abraham is walking up one side of the mountain, the ram is walking up the other side of the mountain. Why Abraham's making the journey, he's got all these questions, questions, the answer. God said the answer's already coming up the upside of the other upside, the other side of the mountain. You just gotta keep marching. You gotta keep trusting. You gotta keep sacrificing. You gotta keep believing. Musicians, you can get ready. Think about this. Because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son to God, God used that story to tell us about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I love it. He said. He said, Abe, I'm paraphrasing here. You won't find this in the KJV. He said, Abe, I, I, knew, I, knew, I knew you would do it, but I just had to test you out, see where you were at, see where your faith was at. But you made the journey. You didn't avoid the altar. You made it. If it had been me, I'm going to be honest. 
I've been like, Brantley, come here, son. I don't know what God's trying to do, but we got to get out of here as quick as possible. And then I called the most spiritual person I know. Hey, can we stay at your house for three days? I need you to intercede right now. He told me to take the boy to the mountain. I'm not going to the mountain with the boy. <laughs> because it's easy to say we trust him. But then when he really challenges us to trust, when he tells you you can really live without that, Nah, nah, I find comfort. Watch this. He didn't allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but he used that to tell a story. Because Isaac is referred to as Abraham's son, his only son. And John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Abraham, I'm not going to require it of you, but you're going to require it of me. Isaac said, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaac traveled for three days on the way to the altar. Jesus was in that tomb for three days and then he got on up. The wood for the sacrifice was placed upon Isaac. The wooden cross was placed upon Jesus' shoulders. Isaac was taken to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. Jesus was sacrificed at Golgotha. You know where they believe Golgotha is? Mount Moriah. God supplied the sacrifice to be offered in place of Isaac. God supplied Jesus as a sacrifice to be offered in our place for our sins. Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Jesus came to die for our sins, but he was raised from the dead. And it's possible that Isaac was about 33 years old. At the time, his father offered him up, and Jesus was about 33 years old when he died on the cross. <laughs> because God is telling Abraham a story. I know you don't see it now, but everything I'm asking you to give, I'm willing to pay so that you can have salvation in your life. Everything that I'm challenging you to do, I'm going to do one day. I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for your redemption. And I love it. Abraham goes on that mountain with questions. When he gets ready to go down, he says, we're going to call it Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And Abraham could enjoy everything he had as long as he didn't think he possessed it. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. And that is the spiritual secret that we need. His altars would impact generations. Isaac would grow up and he would build altars. Jacob would grow up and he would build altars. But I want to end this with, with not Isaac or Jacob. I want to end this with Lot, a nephew who Abraham took in and gave him everything. Look at the lives. Go study it out. He takes Lot in. He actually gives Lot anything he wants. But see, Lot was all, all about the stuff. Go, I can't find one time in this word where his nephew ever said, you know what? I see old Uncle A building an altar. I might want to go build an altar too. No. No, we find Lot, more, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. And then eventually he, he, he focuses his eyes on Sodom and Gomorrah, a wicked city. And it wasn't long. He looked at it so long that he eventually started living there. Because what you, what you keep in your sight and you sit there and you look at, don't be deceived. You're eventually going to end up there. 
You can't sit there and look at it. The eyes are the window to the soul. It's trying to take your soul there. That's what that's, what that's trying to do in your life. Oh, I'm preaching to somebody. See, Lot was about stuff. Abraham was about altars. Lot was about the temporal. Abraham was about the eternal. And watch, when, 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 when Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, Lot's mistakes cause him to lose his wife. Lot, you, you, saw, you saw how Abraham lived. You saw that he built altars and he prayed for direction and he gave everything. Why would you bring your family down this path and bring them here? And Lot, it cost you your wife. Abraham will become an heir of the world through righteousness. You know what Lot's last mention in Genesis is? He's found in a deserted cave surrounded by his stuff. He's in a cave all alone because he never established an altar where he gave it all to God. And he's in a cave all alone surrounded by stuff that he didn't even need. Can I give you some revelation? One day it's all going to be burned up. The house going to be burned up. The vehicle going to be burned up. Everything that's temporal is going to be burned up. But I'll tell you what will not be burned up. And I've decided I'm going to take my family. I'm going to build an altar. And I'm going to make sure that they make it with me. I'm not after the temporal. I'm after the eternal. So here's my question to you today as we stand. What do you need to lay on the altar? Hear me, hear me. There's a call that's going out right now. What do you need to lay on the altar? What desires? What preferences? What fears? What is your Isaac? What are you holding on to? Listen, I know we preach grace and mercy, and I love it. We should preach redemption, grace, and mercy. But I can't be naive as a pastor. One day I'm going to have to stand by that judgment seat and give an account for everybody that I've pastored. And if we don't deal with the stuff holding us back, when we get to judgment, we'll have to answer for it. It's in the game. This isn't something we play. We're not here playing church. We're trying to make it. And there's a call that's going out today. Do you trust him really? Have you given him every aspect of your life? We're hearing the command, but we want to compromise. Not that today. Not, not today. We hear the command and we delay. But it isn't until we come to the altar of sacrifice that God discovers if we can be trusted with what he wants to do in our life. And look, when you go to Mount Moriah, it's a trek. You've got to take a journey. You've got to climb. You've got to get through some things. Do you know where Saul of the Old Testament was when they got ready to, to crown him as king? Go read it. He was hiding among the stuff. Remember, sir, you can't take it with you. Look, and you, please, please hear me clearly today. There are some things that are holding you back from what God wants to do in your life you're not willing to sacrifice it just yet 
But today, I go back to the opening statement. God wants to feel, are we committed? Are we committed? Are we in? Are we available? 